c'est couper les doigts avec ça. Listen, you pervert, why don't you go over to This is a Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. Hey there, and welcome to the RCMP. That's the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. I'm your co-host today, Becky Shrimpton, and with me, once again, is Mr. Cameron Maitland. Hey, dude, how you doing? Hello. Oh, I'm all right. How are you? Good. That was my uh, that was my spooky voice. Oh, sure, yes. <laughs> yes, I am terrified, I suppose, by the implications of science. I don't know. When you were a kid, was there ever, like, a movie that you just caught, like, a random clip of on TV that scared the crap out of you? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think we've actually talked a bit on the various giant rat episodes. I definitely saw a... Uh, uh, like a food of the gods plus something else marathon and and a lot of those images really stuck in my head. Oh yeah, for me it was are you afraid of the dark? Those little creatures oh, with yeah. like the little <laughs> knives and the scissors and their tiny little hands. I don't like raccoons. You cannot expect me to like these little Terrible. creatures. Ugh, I don't like it. Well, we've got another ugly little boy on our show. Uh, we're going to talk about that movie. We have a fantastic guest. I'm so excited to have him on. He is the creator of Retro Ontario. There's a new uh, newsletter that you're going to be able to sign up for if you want to get all that sweet Ontario retro goodness, and you're going to want to because it's great. We have Ed Conroy on with us today. Hey, Ed, how you doing? I'm doing great, guys. How are you? Great. <laughs> <laughs> now, did you have a movie that freaked you out when you were a kid that you just caught like a clip of that stuck with you? Oh, my goodness. So many. But I, I suppose the one that traumatized me the most was uh, coming down, uh, hiding at the top of the stairs and seeing my parents watch A Clockwork Orange. Oh, oh wow. Man. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think it was the music probably that, that mm. frightened me more than anything else, the Wendy Carlos uh, soundtrack. So Sure. As a child, you can reconcile monsters. You can understand that's a thing because we have stories like that. But like Clockwork Orange is just so next level disturbing and it's humans <laughs> doing terrible things to humans. That, like I can only begin to imagine how that fucked you up, quite frankly. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it was pretty weird. <laughs> oh, man. Well, you are now the uh, purveyor of Retro Ontario and all things fantastic and vintage from Ontario in general. How did you end up doing this project? How long have you been doing it? How do people check it out? You know, ever since I was a kid, I, I was super into movies and television. I think I, I knew how to work the VCR before I could read. Um, and I was just really into local stuff. And so... Over the years, I accumulated a pretty massive uh, video collection and, you know, I got into Laserdiscs and, and all that stuff. And then, you know, people would say to me, like, what are you going to do with all this shit? Uh, it was it was quite a lot of stuff. And uh, thankfully, this was uh, sort of early mid 2000s when uh, social media came into our lives and uh, YouTube was this shiny new toy. And I, I thought this is a great uh, place to to exhibit a lot of these weird old bits of, of Canadian and, and local Toronto uh, television culture. Uh, I wasn't sure really if anybody would find interest in it. I just thought, you know, this stuff was pretty important uh, back in the day and it should be preserved. Uh, and then at the same time, I, I kind of work in the industry. So I saw uh, kind of a scary thing happening where a lot of old material was basically being uh, destroyed because of broadcasters and, and whatnot. Producers are looking and saying, well, it's it's on tape. We, we don't want to pay storage to keep this stuff anymore. And we don't really have 
you know, a Library of Congress like they do in America or something like the BFI in the United Kingdom, where, you know, it, there's a lot of, of government money and goodwill about preserving popular culture. In fact, I'm sure you guys have talked about this a lot. There's this very strange Canadian thing where we're almost not that proud of our of our culture. All of this cool stuff, certainly in the realm of television that was being done in Toronto in the 70s, you know, it blows my mind. It was like on the cutting edge of what was happening. And yet uh, nobody was really celebrating. That was what Retro Ontario was born out of. Well, that and the top level of acting talent that is in a lot of this television, who would then go on to do major things, um, especially the TVO stuff. And you are like one of the biggest hosts for a lot of uh, TVO. That's TV Ontario for our non-Ontario listeners, uh, which is kind of like the province-wide education channel where it's like we produce content for Ontario. There's like TV Ontario kids, but there's also uh, like lots of educational programs and things like that. And you've been maintaining a lot of that stuff. Yeah, I mean, TV Ontario has this really fascinating history because, you know, when we were kids, that channel was trusted by parents as sort of an electronic babysitter, if you will, because parents knew the content was going to be family friendly. So a lot of us got exposed to it that way. But then they had a very large component of of being involved with uh, the Ontario curriculum. So you had all of these programs that were being designed to be shown uh in class so you know you'd you'd learn how to read and and here is this tv ontario program that was going to help you learn how to read or do math or speak french and you know these guys and girls that were making this stuff were really out there and uh, i think a lot of it resonated with us because it was just crazy like it was not sort of cookie cutter uh, pbs style educational programs it was like they had no money, uh, they had not a lot of time, but they put so much imagination into these things that, uh, you know, 40 years later, almost every day I get an email from someone who says, hey, uh, I have this weird fuzzy memory of like a, a big robot head uh, coming in and, and talking about algebra. Do you know what it is? <laughs> and it's like always the same shows, right? It's like, they just laid their eggs uh, in everyone's head and and it's great and i love talking about it so when you know when you guys reached out i thought here's a pretty big one that there really isn't a lot uh of fanfare about but it's kind of an important one i think Oh, dude, we got to talk about the entire concept of classics, dark and dangerous, which led me down like a whole <laughs> rabbit hole of fascinating. So do you know much about this whole series? Yes, no, absolutely. Because the other important thing here, I think, to talk about is uh, back in the day when you were at school, the way that films and educational programs mostly were shown before the advent of the VCR were on 16 millimeter films. And you know, that to me, that that memory of being in a class and the, the 16 mil projector getting wheeled in, I mean, it was a really big deal because, you know, when VCRs came and, and obviously DVDs and all that, you would see that stuff in school, but you would go home and you had a VCR at home or you had a DVD player. Mm. At home. Yeah. So it wasn't that special. Like It was still great that you got a movie at school. But when it was on 16 mil, I mean, it's like that was how I understood projection like from a young age was watching this giant old machine making all these noises and seeing the light you know hitting the the screen in the classroom and the reason that the classics dark and dangerous i think was part of this whole 
world of 16 millimeter uh, distribution uh, where you had short films being made with the sole intention of exploiting them through curriculum and through uh, the American and, and Canadian school systems. And it was great, right? It's like you have a classic novel. Let's condense it down to, to 22 minutes or 30 minutes and show it uh, on 16 mil. And then there was also obviously showing it on television at a later date and time. This series, it was a, a very strange co-production of uh, TV Ontario and CBC and uh, and these guys in the UK. And it, like all these classic old backroom deals, probably the the reason why these things are not available on dvd or, or even officially anywhere is because it was probably structured in such a way that nobody knows who owns it now yeah mm. which is why it sits on youtube and you can go check it out there they're all available <laughs> and I, I totally ended up going down a rabbit hole because i was like all right they're doing arthur conan doyle stories they've got dh lawrence they've got robert block and supposedly robert block actually scripted his own script for the uh, february 24th 1977 episode the mannequin but like the level of talent in this like glennis john was in it john hurt uh, we're going to talk about kate reed and barry morse and guy big and like these are not small productions and these are not small actors but a lot of the people are were coming through the stratford and the shaw festival so they're major theater actors oh totally i mean you had christopher Plummer playing sherlock holmes yeah um and and again these were people uh, maybe get the wrong idea when you say it's a 20 minute version of a, of a classic piece of literature i mean they distilled them down to their most uh, important beats of the story and it was a way of getting young people excited at the concept of, of of reading these books, right? And so, yeah, I mean, we're not talking about showing, you know, Silver Blaze or or the mannequin to, to grade two. Uh, these things were, were being shown to, to kids in high school. And that was how I found out about this was uh, I wasn't in a class that was uh, watching The Ugly Little Boy. But I used to stay at my school during lunch hour in the 80s. You know, most kids would go home for lunch, but there was always mm. this band of, of misfits that would stay. And quite often the AV club, which was basically the guys who were in charge of the projectors and making sure that they got back into the AV room, they would sometimes bring it in the lunchroom and they would show stuff or they would be rewinding films or, or splicing films. And I remember seeing sort of the last probably the last 10 minutes of ugly little boy uh and it just fucked me up you know just, <laughs> for obvious reasons so strange and there was no way of like you know looking up who isaac asimov was or mm. uh who any of these people were there's no there was no credits long before imdb existed and there was no reference books or anything that talked about these educational films. And there were lots of them. Um, you know, the classic Stark and Dangerous were distributed by a company called the Learning Corporation of America. And even today, even in 2019, there are people trying to piece together all of the films that were distributed by that company. And that was just one of hundreds of companies that were distributing these things. So it was this mysterious piece that lingered in my imagination. There was always days when I thought, did I just imagine that? Uh, did that actually happen? You know, here it is uh, on YouTube. It, it showed up one day and it was it was amazing because honestly, TV Ontario couldn't even tell you anything about it. They have they they don't keep very good records of, of things they did mm. in the past, unfortunately. That's 
heartbreaking because they've got so much. And especially, I love the fact that they used to have uh, an educational mandate for absolutely everything. It has since been dropped. So you would have like normal television shows, but they would have to have actors come in and like explain the context to you. So like they showed The Prisoner and it was hosted by this journalist named Warner Troyer who would talk about uh, the like psychological, philosophical and sociological themes within it. Episodes of Doctor Who were shown with a science fiction author, Judith Merrill, who would talk about the various themes in science and science fiction. Like this is just fascinating to me that you're providing a mainstream entertainment with context. Yeah, oh, yeah. And I mean, that that's what LBO was doing there, right? Yeah. I mean, Saturday Night at the Movies and Magic Shadows, everybody, I think, that is a, of a certain vintage uh, that's into movies uh, that grew up in Ontario remembers Uncle Elwi. And he was there putting context, putting an educational spin on, you know, screenings of Citizen Kane or, or King Kong or whatever it was. And yeah, the, the Doctor Who uh, episodes, what, what was always weird about that was, you know, you'd have uh, something like Polka Dot Door would be on and then Polka Dot Door would end and then Doctor Who would start like right <laughs> after it. And, you know, there'd be like a million traumatized kids like hiding behind the couch because... There wasn't a lot of time in between the end credits for you to get ready for mm. that. And, uh, you know, again, it's it sounds a little bit uh, like a grumpy old person to say, oh, you know, back back in the day. But when you didn't have the information available to you as a viewer, uh, television was just a, a very mysterious place because you would stumble on things, you know, in the middle of the night or in the middle of the afternoon and you'd have no idea what it was. Sometimes it would seem like it was being broadcast from another galaxy, really. And I guess that's part of what drives uh, Retro Ontario is to sort of uncover as much of that as possible and do the research and, and put those stories back out there because there's always wonderful stories behind these things. It's almost like you've been transported from the past and now you're having to cope in the future, but you don't have a wonderful <laughs> loving nurse that's taking care of you. <laughs> let me let me have it. Come on, guys. <laughs> All right. We're talking about The Ugly Little Boy. Ed, what is The Ugly Little Boy about? Well, it's based on an, on an Asimov piece. And I, I believe I've, I've heard that it was his second favorite story that he wrote, uh, which is quite remarkable. Uh, it's always amazed me that it hasn't been turned into a to a big budget Hollywood film mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> because it's got all the the hallmarks that we've all come to to know and love, uh, which is a time travel paradox. So basically, it's set in the future. There are scientists uh, messing around with time and bringing things from the past into the into their present to do research and then sending it back because they don't want to mess up the ebb and flow of time. And they bring uh, a Neanderthal boy into the future to, to do research on. And, of course, the nurse who is uh, looking after him is absolutely uh, heartbroken when she's told he's got to go back because she feels he started to evolve and it wouldn't be fair to put him back in the past. And we, we won't spoil the ending, but it's, it's, it's quite a shocking ending and it's almost like, uh, like a Twilight Zone kind of ending. But it's a wonderful piece and I think too uh because of things like back to the future and and so much popular culture has explored the idea of time travel and time paradox that i think now it's easier to digest stories like that perhaps than it was 
you know, a high school kid uh, watching that on 16 millimeter in the 70s. The performances in this are excellent. And it is one of those things where it's very theatrical. Uh, it is uh, Barry Morse, who was one of the founders of the Shaw Festival. Um, and he was known apparently as the CBC test pattern because he was on <laughs> Canadian broadcasting so often. <laughs> which I love. Yeah. And then Kate Reed, who people will remember from when we did uh, The Best Damn Fiddler from Calabogie to Caladar, but like she was in everything in uh, Canadian film. Uh, she did incredibly well. And then Guy Big plays the ugly little boy and Cam knows a little bit about Guy Big. Oh, I don't know a ton. I mean, I just know that he was also on the hilarious House of Frightened <laughs> That's right. He was, of course, the the mini count. Yeah, yeah. And what's, what's amazing about that is, uh, you know, Mike Myers has talked a lot about growing up in Scarborough, watching Frightenstein and Obviously, Mini Me uh, from the Austin Powers films is based on Mini Count. Oh wow! And and poor old uh, guy Big uh, passed away not long after uh, the Ugly Little Boy was filmed. And by all accounts, uh, I've interviewed many people that worked on Frightenstein, and they they just said he was this incredibly talented man, and he he mm. probably would have had an interesting career um, had he not died so young. Because <sighs> yeah, he was in his thirties, wasn't he? Like he was young. Mm-hmm. He was a super young guy. Um, but it's funny about Barry Morris because, you know, obviously most people would probably think of the the, the fugitive, right? The, mm. the original black and white fugitive. And, you know, he, he was in all these very serious British programs and films. But, yeah, it, you know, he turns up in not just I, mean, I would say his CBC stuff is probably is, is above, uh, you know, above grade. It's when he turns up in like Littlest Hobo and, uh, you know, Strange But True and, and he's all these like shot on videotape, really poorly made shows that were shooting in southern Ontario because he was uh, a theater guide. I, I mean, I love that, that he was back and forth. Um, and if you look at his filmography, it's the, the swings from low budget to high budget are, are pretty phenomenal. But he's never uh, he's never phoning anything in. No one in no, this is phoning no. anything in. Like Kate Reed is giving one hell of a performance. Uh, Guy Big, I think part of the reason why this well, this is so disturbing and why high schoolers would have like been like, oh, I don't know how I feel about this. And why I probably messed you up is that it's like genuinely disturbing to watch him freak out and he's genuinely terrified. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, you know, it should be noted that it was shot at the, the Ontario science center hmm. and that uh, sort of brutalist architecture that you see, I think it just sets it up so perfectly, uh, especially along with that uh, phenomenal soundtrack. Time sounds like a, like a Casio gone berserk, like a synthesizer possessed, but it's uh, Patricia Cullen, who, of course, went on to do a lot of the incidental music for Nelvana films and television series. Hmm. Um, but it, it creates this very unsettling atmosphere. And then, yeah, you're right. These you know people like uh, like Barry Morris and Kay Reed show up and, and they're treating it totally seriously. And, you know, I reckon that is always what uh, makes these things kind of scary when you watch a low budget horror film. If the actors are not really believing in the material, then, of course, it's not going to translate. But these spooky old uh, adaptations, uh, the actors were absolutely taking it deathly serious. And certainly uh, as a a young person watching it, I mean, it it felt real. So, yeah, I mean, overall, just uh, the atmosphere I found for something so short, it, it establishes it right away with you know the, the helicopter flying over toronto and you see the cn tower and the the music is has an urgency to it it kind of reminds me a little bit of the beginning of 
uh, the the George Romero Dawn of the Dead, mm. which has similar vintage helicopters and that that menacing soundtrack right from the beginning, and you feel like okay, some some shit is going down, like something really serious is happening, and uh, you know, kudos. Like again, I don't know if they if they even knew how good they were making this thing they probably you know the the distributors sent them out and made their money and then this thing kind of went into the black hole asimov is notoriously hard to adapt because he's very talky he's very thinky his messages are not light-handed um so things can get very preachy very quickly but because you have this caliber of acting in it and because of the way they've adapted it so that like you get a little bit of the technical mumbo jumbo but not too much um and there's genuine emotion between the two characters um you don't feel too preached to and you feel more like you're caught up in the story as opposed to the message uh absolutely and i i think the parable that I saw in it as well, watching it again as a, as a grown up is like, uh, you know, the attachment that, uh, you know, as a parent that you would have to a newborn. And when the newborn starts to say mama, you know, like mm. when, when he's saying mama in that movie, uh, it, it's like, that's the moment when she turns and, 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 and has this, you know, need to protect him, but it's uh, very mature stuff. Certainly. Uh, at the, the, the book, uh, the short story that it's based on is, is a lot more, as you say, talky and, and scientific. But I found the uh, edits that were done to, to create the short piece uh, here were, 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 were incredible, frankly. And I think a lot of that is due to the involvement of, of Jim Hanley. Now, his name does not show up on the credits for Ugly Little Boy, but he worked at TV Ontario and he kind of oversaw their involvement in this project mm. and i don't know if you're familiar with with his name but he was kind of like the uh original guy at tvo who who decided to disrupt the medium of television so he created a show called media circus there it was like the first show that was about what television is and what it does to you and how it how it should be used as an educational tool he created magic shadows with lb Yost. He then went on, obviously, he hooked up with Moses Neimer. He helped Moses Neimer create uh, TV, TV and the originals. And he's just this really fascinating guy from Toronto that's weaved into television lore here. But he had a big, uh, a big influence on the way that these uh, shows for, for Classic Stark and Dangerous were, were done. And absolutely, he uh, guaranteed that it was taken seriously and not in any way dumbed down for the audience. I can only imagine what like booklets accompanied this that were written out, right? They'd be like, let's think about how she feels about the child. How would you feel in this circumstance? <laughs> this, but this feels like it would have more depth to the conversation, especially in terms of the way the scientists act. Like for me, I'm just thinking these are really bad scientists because how you would actually observe this little boy would be you would watch him act and create and do things and he would teach you his language you wouldn't impose the other things the opposite way and there's such a colonialist aspect to it oh totally and i i mean i love the scene uh the the, the other scientist who's just heartbroken that that rock is being yeah, sent back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, that's that's if i had to choose a favorite thing it's like yeah they really set you up the fact that she's never gonna not love this kid because that guy loves the rock so much <laughs> I also love her direct-to-camera monologue of no friends, no love, no connections. <laughs> yes, I will do it. And I'm like, ah, anyone but Kate Reed would blow that monologue. 
yeah, it was, it was very seventies, you know, let's, uh, let's, let's put it that way. But, uh, yeah, I mean, the other, the other thing about, uh, the TV Ontario connection is, you know, over the years that a lot of the educational shows, the very educational shows they did that kind of dabbled in science fiction, I'm talking about, uh, read all about it is sort of the big one, but there was Zardip's search for health and wellness and how do you do and all of these wonderful programs but they were at the end of the day they were kind of hokey because they had to stop the science fiction element and actually teach you know grade five uh reading and writing uh and i always thought man if if they took that approach that production value that they had even though it wouldn't have been very much money and actually did a, a full-on balls to the wall science fiction movie uh, or series, it would have been amazing. It would have been like mm. a Doctor Who kind of thing. And I think Ugly Little Boy is really the only example of, yeah, they they killed it. I mean, they they could if if that had somehow worked out differently and been a regular part of their schedule, it, you know, it could have been absolutely incredible. And it's it's an interesting what if, you know. Yeah, yeah, because I watched The Rocking Horse Winner, which is a disturbing uh, D.H. Lawrence mm. story. And, like, the production value on that and the acting in that is unbelievable. And it's very different because in this one, it's very clearly, like, the, they spent most of their money on the helicopter. You know they did. And so, <laughs> and so the rest of it does have that, like, okay, we're going to keep the vacuum uh, industry in business by using their parts for all of our, like, belts and pieces of equipment and stuff. Um, but even within that, just the story is so compelling and it goes so well in um, in The Rocking Horse Winner you're like they were doing so much with so little and it's again just comes to the caliber of the people who are working on it yeah and i think you know shooting it on location uh as opposed to a studio set that always helps a little bit and i think shooting it on film as opposed to a lot of cbc productions back in the day you might notice when people are outside it's it's on film but then they go inside and it's suddenly on video Mm. Uh, and it's it's kind of jarring, but it's like that's because the studios were set up with videotape, and when they were outside, they're they're shooting on sixteen millimeter. Um, but when you see a full on location production like Ugly Little Boy, it just gives it again that that little bit more credibility. Um, and you know, using the Science Center, which looks exactly the same now as it did then, <laughs> uh, it's it, you know it was such a big deal back then that it was this very futuristic building. And we're at the end of our show, guys. Uh, we need to just do favorite moments. Oh, I mean, I, I guess I already talked. I th- think The Rock is mine, <laughs> um, but I also love. I, I think that the, the, like you were saying, the editing down of the story works so well. And one thing that's nice is because it's kind of like a two act structure. I like how it changes it changes pretty quickly and the way they do it they make it work is kind of it's just you know a fade through time but also the real consistency of the other scientists really charmed me that they uh, no one else wavers whatsoever on this little boy and i thought that 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 was well played and worked very well how about for yourself ed what's your favorite moment you know i already talked about it a bit but i think the opening uh, which has no dialogue it really grips you and it puts you in this situation where you're wondering what exactly is going on. Um, and I think, you know, if I may, a favorite part is something that they didn't do, which is they didn't show you uh, the, the back in time stuff. Like mm. I think it really could have lost a lot of credibility if they showed you where they ended up at the, at the end. Uh, I think it would have ended up looking like uh, like an old Star Trek or something. It would have looked silly. So I think uh, that first part is definitely my favorite part. 
Oh, definitely. Uh, for me, it's the guy big performance. Like, he's just so good in this. And he's acting under so much makeup. And, like, his eyes are so wide. And I have no idea how he's doing that because he's clearly got so many prosthetics on his forehead. I don't know how it's working anymore. But it's just such a remarkable performance that I can't get enough of it. Okay, Ed, how do people find Retro Ontario? And if people have things that they have sitting in their back closets, how do they get them to you? <laughs> yes, we uh, we love to help uh, uh re uh reacquaint this material put it back out online you can you can find us at retro ontario 10.com but as well we are of course are on youtube and facebook and twitter and instagram blah 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 and we have a weekly newsletter which is also sort of a roundup of material that we've found recently that that is of interest and stuff that people have have donated to us so check it out how about you cam how are people finding you these days uh, i'm just at cam on twitter and then uh yeah just various things about town i don't know I, everything i do will be on there it's probably the best way i'll also say that i subscribe to that newsletter and i recommend it <laughs> <laughs> thank you <laughs> And then as per usual, you can f- find me on the Twitters. I am Atlas Shrimpton. That's the masculine, the Shrimpton over there. And of course, you can come chat with us anytime. That's at RCM Pod on the Twitters. And uh, of course, we'll be uh, shooting out all of our favorite stuff over there. I think that's just about everything. Ed, do you want to go get a moose head? <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. If you like what we're doing, please remember to rate us and subscribe on iTunes or on your favorite podcatcher. It helps people find our podcast and Canadian media they love. Come chat with us at RCM Pod on Facebook or on Twitter at RCM Pod. Our theme song is by Craig Stewart and our show art is by Paul Stachniak. Join us next week for another great film from the wilds of Canadian cinema.